New videos released by Tucker Carlson at Fox News suggest that the January 6th kerfuffle was actually a mere ruckus, except for brief moments when it became a fracas before settling into a foo followed by a to-do interrupted by a bobbery, which then expanded into a melee before dying out in a pother. That is, if it wasn't just a bunch of idiots charging into the Capitol building, followed by another bunch of idiots trying to prevent the first bunch of idiots from certifying the election of a new bunch of idiots, in which case all we can say about January 6th is that the Capitol was filled with idiots, just like any other day when Congress is in session. The media hoo-ha over the hurly-burly became a full-blown willy-wall after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy gave Carlson the new videos of the ruction, or possibly fufara, depending on who's telling the story. Democrats immediately objected to the showing of the videos, saying Carlson was cherry-picking scenes of the pandemonium in order to make it appear to be a mere hoopla, whereas they preferred to cherry-pick scenes of the hoopla to make it seem like pandemonium. Senate Majority Leader and demonic-lying dirtbag Chuck Schumer said, quote, It is absolutely despicable for Carlson's distortion of events to interrupt our distortion of events when anyone can see from our distortion of events that this was much worse than it looks in his distortion of events. You didn't see the news media pulling this sort of thing when Adolf Hitler was trying to overplay the burning of the Reichstag, although perhaps that isn't the best possible analogy since it's exactly the same sort of thing we're doing and makes us look like Hitler. Unquote. Republican opponents of Schumer responded by accusing the Senate leader and demonic lying dirtbag of being a demonic lying dirtbag. But Schumer claimed he was being completely transparent since demonic lying dirtbag was actually right there in his job description. And anyway, you can tell what he is just by looking at him, so he's obviously not trying to hide anything. The scenes in the Carlson videos do suggest that events at the kerfuffle differed from the bobbery described by House Democrats when they were dishonestly suppressing dissenting voices in order to give their version of the bobbery, which was really just a kerfuffle. For instance, while the guy who dressed in a furry horned hat and called himself QAnon Shaman was sentenced to four years in prison after pleading to a charge of joining a bunch of idiots to disrupt a bunch of idiots, the video shows Capitol Police actually guiding QAnon Shaman around the building as if they were giving him a tour. However, the videos do confirm that he was in fact dressed in a furry horned hat, which is also punishable by four years in prison, or at least should be. In response to the Fox News report, the media rushed to defend the Democrat narrative by forming a circle around it and beating their shields while chanting loudly in order to drown out the sound of everyone ignoring them while they were watching Fox News. CNN, in a secret meeting held on air during primetime to make sure no one was watching, said the Fox videos were quote-unquote dangerous because they revealed that CNN had been spewing skewed propaganda which might cause them to lose some of their zero viewers so that they would have negative viewers, a metaphysical impossibility which might cause reality to implode into fragments of incoherent blather so that the entire universe would be indistinguishable from Don Lemon. The New York Times, a former newspaper, ran a headline, and this is a real headline, that said, quote, Republican lawmakers split over Carlson's false January 6 claims. When asked how they knew the claims were false, Times editors replied, it's right there in the headline. President and venal houseplant Joe Biden also condemned the Carlson videos and drove the point home by falling up a flight of stairs into an airplane where he found one of his male political appointees dressed as a woman and stealing his luggage, causing Biden to fall back down the stairs 
where he bumped into one of his male political appointees dressed as a woman and calling for the sexual mutilation of children. A scene of such chaos, incompetence, and moral depravity that it caused a bunch of idiots to storm the Capitol building, demanding that the bunch of idiots already in the Capitol building should refuse to certify Biden's election, which was already certified. So it was quite a foo or a hoo-ha, depending on who you ask. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. Hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hurrah. All right, we are back laughing our way through the fall of the Republic. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff today, January 6th and COVID and Afghanistan. And the one thing they all have in common, which is that everything Democrats touch turns to crap and no Democrat can ever ever figure out why everything around them is turning to crap. And by the way, before we get started on the show, I'd like to show you, we have uh, the new cover of my new Cameron Winter Mystery, which is out October 31st. Uh, it's called The House of Love and Death. I really like the um, the new cover they've got. Uh, I think you can actually go on Amazon and pre-order it, uh, but it will be available for pre-order soon. I'll, uh, I will plug it uh, as much as I can. Uh, one of my favorite titles, and a title that actually has a great payoff at the end of the book, uh, and uh, my wife recommends this book. She says it's one of the best books I've ever written. And my editor, when I told him that, he said, your wife always likes your books. <laughs> it's absolutely untrue. She definitely has, she's edited some of them very heavily. Uh, this is a great time for you to subscribe to my personal YouTube channel, the Andrew Claven YouTube channel. We think that YouTube may be kind of sitting on our videos, and so we want you to show up and show them what for. You will also get exclusive content. This is the Andrew Claven YouTube channel, not the Daily Wires one, and we will send you exclusive content. Uh, if you ring that bell, uh, you will be electrocuted, but the... Uh, content will be delivered to your funeral. Uh, and also, if you leave a comment and the comment is sufficiently hateful, uh, bigoted, sexist, uh, you know, just disgustingly immoral, uh, we'll read it on the air because that's the kind of stuff we love here. Uh, today's comment is from Jonathan Schmidt, who says, I just saw the latest Mandalorian episode and they explained that Gina Carano was recruited by the New Republic Special Forces. So that means the Daily Wire is not only in Star Wars, but is also an elite band of freedom fighters. Well, we knew that already. I mean, that, that's not news. Have you ever stopped to wonder why internet access is so much cheaper these days? Well, it's because internet service providers aren't just making money off subscription fees, they're also making money by tracking and selling your online activity to big tech companies. What's the best way to make sure that your internet service provider can't get a hold of your data? You guessed it, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a secure tunnel between all your devices and the internet so that everything you do online is encrypted. I love ExpressVPN because it's incredibly easy to use. Just fire up the app and click one button. Plus, it works on all my devices, my phone, my laptop, even my Wi-Fi router. Your data is your business. Protect it at expressvpn.com slash Claven. Use my link at expressvpn.com slash Claven to get three extra months free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash, how do you spell it? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. No E's in Claven. There are no E's. 
All right. So normally on the show, uh, we talk about principles, right? We talk about ideas and the clash of ideas. And the funny thing is, I mean, the interesting thing about a free country and uh, any place where people are allowed to uh, discuss their differences is people can prior, good people can prioritize different principles. And that's what leads to compromise. And nobody has all the truth and nobody has all the morals. Uh, and it used to be that way in this country where liberals and conservatives would just prioritize different principles. So conservatives would prioritize freedom uh, and liberals would prioritize fairness. And we would say, for instance, no matter how much money Jeff Bezos has, it's his money and he earned it, and the government has no right to take it away and give it to somebody else uh, because they shouldn't have the power to do that. Because if they have the power to do it to him, they have the power to do it to all of us, right? And the uh, left would say, oh, but look at, you know, Jeff Bezos' poor workers. They can't go to the bathroom. He mistreats them and all these things. And so, yeah, I, I still would prioritize Bezos' freedom, but I also believe they're right. You know, that Bezos should treat his workers with respect and with kindness and like human beings. Uh, and that, that a country that is so unfair uh, that people can't tolerate it won't stand long. So, there, you know, there's room for us to debate and where's, where's the borderline and you push the football back and forth around the 50-yard line. That is no longer the truth because the Democrats are now being run by a far left group who are governed by academic theories that have no analog in reality. Socialism doesn't work. It has never worked. No, there's no place on earth where it has ever worked. Uh, men can't become women. Bad neighborhoods need police. Because they're denying reality, everything they touch turns to crap. This is not a question of principle. This is a question of having ideas that simply do not uh, connect with the real world. And when the, the thing that drives me crazy is when they look around at the crap, they're like, what happened? I don't understand. What, what's good? What can we do? We must do something. Now we have to go to the government and fix this. You know, instead of saying, oh, oh, it must be Donald Trump. You know, it's like whatever it is. They cannot understand that they're just out of touch with reality. And the thing about it is we can't even get to the point where we're arguing about reality because we're just arguing about the fact that every single thing they touch has turned to crap, but they never take responsibility. And there's a reason they don't have to take responsibility, and that is the news media. And the news media does not hold Democrats to account. And the reason the news media doesn't hold Democrats to account is that the left runs the news media and everything the news media touches turns to crap, including everything the left touches turns to crap, including the news media. There was this great clip. This is my clip of the week uh, on Bill Maher. Uh, Russell Brands is talking to MSNBC's John Heileman, who's become this kind of, you know, he used to be kind of a, a decent journalist, but now he's just this anti-Trump uh, hack. And Heileman was talking about a legitimate story, a legitimate criticism of Fox News, that the Fox talkers did not express their doubts about the uh, idea that the Biden election was stolen, right? They didn't tell people. They didn't think that was true, but they uh, continued to broadcast as if it were true, as opposed to that nice Andrew Clavin on The Andrew Clavin Show, who took the hit and, and took your anger and explained to you that this was not something that had been proven in any way, shape, or form. And this is the reason for this is because Fox News is a business. I'm on a mission from God. It's a, it's a difference in the way we act. So Russell Brown's, Brown Brand says to John Heileman, you guys at MSNBC are just as biased at Fox News. And Heileman says, oh, yeah, give me an example. And here is Brand's response. Uh, cut one. Do you want an example? Do yeah, you want an example? Yes. The ludicrous, outrageous criticisms of Joe Rogan around ivermectin, re deliberately referring to it as a horse non, medicine when they know it's an effective non medicine. Yeah, that, that's what not a Rachel example. Maddow turning up on the TV saying, if you take this vaccine, you're not going to get it, when it hadn't been clinically trialed for transmission. You have to listen. Wait, Do you think you can improve America by determinately and avowedly condemning Fox News without acknowledging that you're participating in the same game? 
Now, what's, what's wonderful about this is Heilman can't hear what Brand is saying. He keeps saying non-responsive, non-responsive, because what he's saying is the Fox hosts were saying something different behind the scenes, and so they knew they were putting forward misinformation. But when you have John Brennan on Morning Joe, after you know that John Brennan is a spreader of misinformation on a mission— to disinform the public. When you have Adam Schiff on after you know he lies and he's continuing lying and you keep bringing him back on. When you have guys like Donnie Deutsch who compare a sitting president to Adolf Hitler, Adolf Hitler who brought about the the murder, the slaughter of 70 million people uh, and you're comparing Donald Trump like that because you don't like the cut of his jib, you know you're lying. You know you're full of it. You know, remember when Devin Nunes uh, on the House, he was the chairman of the House Intel Committee in 2018, and he sent a letter questioning how the FBI handled the Russian collusion story. And we now know that the FBI rigged the Russian collusion story for their own purposes. We know they used material that they knew was false. And this was how Heilman reacted to Devin Nunes' letter, right? This is cut two. Is it possible that the Republican chairman of the House Intel Committee has been compromised by the Russians? Is it possible that they actually have a Russian agent running the House Intel Committee on the Republican side? So he accused him of being a Russian spy for saying what turned out to be true. If he didn't know he was lying then, he knows now. Has he ever gone back and corrected? Of course not. He was just asking a question, just asking a question. So it's not, not like he made the statement. This is typical stuff. You know, they, you know, it's, they, they know that they're uh, overblown. They know that they're biased, but they never, never stop. And that's why the news media has turned to crap. They say Ron DeSantis uh, is banning books, and then he comes out and shows pictures of what he's banning in elementary schools and the news media has to turn off the cameras because it's so filthy that they can't put it on the air. So now, now, what's happened? 16% of Americans have confidence in newspapers, down from 25% a decade earlier, 35% in 2002. 11% of Americans trust TV news, 53% don't. 11% of Americans trust John Heileman on MSNBC and the left can't figure out why. Why did the news media turn to crap? What happened? So they did a report. This is a report uh, from the from two uh, journalist professors, uh, one from the from the ASU Walter Cronkite School of Journalism. Uh, and it's called, they put out a report. Uh, it's called Beyond Objectivity. And they interview all these guys in newsrooms. What are we going to do to fix the news media? And they all say the same thing. We've got to get beyond beyond. Uh, objectivity, we have to get beyond objectivity. This is a real quote. The journalist's job is truth, not objectivity. It's reality, not objectivity, which means they know the truth. The reason you are objective, the reason you let different sides come in is because you don't know the truth. You don't have a monopoly on the truth. So you let the Democrats talk, you let the Republicans talk, and then you let the public decide. That's all objectivity is. It's keeping your stupid leftist opinions to themselves, but they can't do it because they think that the reality is their left-wing worldview. And all of the interviews, all the interviews have spout this leftist equity and diversity and inclusion. 
and they can't figure out why the news media is going to hell. They can't fi- figure out why it's uh, turning to crap because they can't figure out why everything they touch turns to crap. You know, it's like churches. The churches say, well, we're not relevant anymore, so we're going to stop talking about Christ and sin and all that stuff people don't like, and we're going to play the guitar. And suddenly they look around, the church is empty. Where did everybody go? You know, what, what, what has caused this? It must be something our society. No, it's you. It's you not doing your job. Everything the left touches turns to crap, and they never have to take responsibility about it because the news media doesn't hold them to account because the left runs the news media, and everything the left touches turns to crap. More examples coming up. You know, a lot of people ask me uh, what it's like to have bad hearing, and I always say, what? <laughs> That's why. That is why, because it's so annoying when you can't hear as well as you should. That's why you've got to check out MD Hearing. MD Hearing is an FDA-registered rechargeable hearing aid that costs a fraction of what typical hearing aids cost. MD Hearing's new Neo model costs over 90% less than clinic hearing aids. And the Neo is MD Hearing's smallest hearing aid ever. It fits inside your ear. No one will even know it's there. MD Hearing provides clinic-level care via telemedicine from doctors and licensed hearing professionals. You get a clinic-level experience without ever having to leave home. MD Hearing has sold over 1 million hearing aids, plus they offer a 45-day risk-free trial with a 100% money-back guarantee so you can buy with confidence. Go to mdhearing.com, use promo code CLAVEN to get their new buy one, get one for $149.99 each when you buy a pair. Plus, they're adding a free extra charging case, a $100 value just for my listeners. Go to mdhearing.com and use promo code CLAVEN to get their new buy one, get one for $149.99 each when you buy a pair. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how do you spell Claven? And the, I don't know because I can't hear it, but I think it's K-L-A-V-A-N. So there are a lot of he- hearings going on on Capitol Hill this week because now the Republicans are in charge of the House so they can call the hearings and they can have different committees than the Democrats have and they can look into different things. And what the hearings are showing is a really interesting result, which is that everything the left touches turns to crap. And before we even get to the new hearings, I want to just go back for a second because I opened up with a satire about the, the January 6 hearings, which were so rigged, right? And Tucker Carlson is now has now got, Kevin McCarthy gave him all this footage that people didn't see. People who were defending the, that QAnon shaman didn't even have the footage that Carlson showed on the air when he was defending himself in court. Now, he pleaded, he, he copped a plea, but that's when you do what you do when you're looking at like a long time. You know, you get scared and you cop a plea. If he had had that, maybe he would have defended himself uh, more. Uh, maybe he would have had uh, an easier time defending himself, not have had to cop the plea. Uh, but we didn't see any of this thing. And, and you know, and you know, I've, I've told you, I have no respect for the January 6th kerfuffle. I have no respect for this thing. Oh, well, the police did it and the FBI were there. It was a stupid thing to do. It was politically stupid. Trump was stupid not to stop it sooner. And there was there was some violence, you know, that we can't pretend it was a purely peaceful thing. But we are seeing a different version. And the reason we are seeing a different version, you know, 
The people who stood in front of burning cities during the Black Lives Matter riots and said this was mostly peaceful, you know, it's like saying my marriage is mostly peaceful. I only beat my wife when she gets out of line, which is most not most of the time. You know, it's like what it's saying. The cities were burning down. The Black Lives Matter people were burning down cities and Tifa were burning down cities. And they said it was mostly peaceful. So they're the same people who now act like this kerfuffle in the Capitol was a revolution, an insurrection, which is just absurd. Right. And now Tucker Carlson is showing a different side of the story. And the reason that is so shocking to people is because they covered it up, right? And listen to listen to Chuck Schumer. This guy, uh, unbelievable, like I said, he even looks kind of like demonic. But <laughs> listen to his response to Tucker Carlson giving his version of events. That's all he's doing. The, the House committee gave their version. Now he's giving his version. He's got the receipts just like they had the receipts. You know, so he's just showing different video. And this is Schumer's response. Cut three. Rupert Murdoch, who has admitted they were lies and said he regretted it, has a special obligation to stop Tucker Carlson from going on tonight now that he's seen how he has perverted and slimed the truth and from letting him go on again and again and again. Not because their views deserve such opprobrium, but because our democracy depends on it. Our democracy depends on no one hearing any side but the Democrats. But remember, this reason we are in this position, this is the thing that they always want to forget the past because everything they touch turns to crap. And if you look back at the past, you get the causes for why things turn to crap. And that that was the Democrats. Nancy Pelosi, remember, barred Jim Jordan and Jim Banks from sitting on the January 6th committee because she knew that they would defend Donald Trump. And Kevin McCarthy just pulled his people. And so she put on a bunch of anti-Trump Republicans on there. Liz Cheney was on there, you know, not exactly a fair trial. And when you do not have a defense, you do not have a trial. You know, this is the whole thing about conspiracy theories. When you only hear one side, the conspiracy theory sounds great. When you hear the other side, suddenly things start to fall apart. When you don't have both sides, you're not hearing anything. Right. That's why I didn't cover those hearings very much. I just, you know, I blew them off because I knew that what people were going to do as well. We're not hearing both sides, but but there is no but. If you're not hearing both sides, you're not hearing anything. And now you're hearing both sides. And that's what's threatening democracy as far as Chuck Schumer is concerned. Both sides. And I'll tell you something. You want to see why I'm going to show you why they didn't put Jim Jordan on that on that committee to defend Trump. Okay. I don't like to, you know, idolize politicians, but he has done a really good job this week. Uh, he was on a committee looking into the causes of the uh, COVID-19 virus, right? Now, remember, th- this is amazing. The handling of this virus was the biggest mistake made by a government since the Germans started World War One. okay, which just wiped out a generation of people. We got economic destruction. We're now so deep in debt, we can't see. Uh, The young people traumatized, young people uneducated. American turned against American over masks, which turned out to do nothing. Cities destroyed in riots over nothing. The freedoms that were destroyed and taken away, fear that was spread, and all of it we now know was unnecessary. The lockdowns didn't help. We know this now. The masks didn't help. The school shutdowns didn't help. All in error, all leftist crap. And what about this? Where did this virus come from? Okay, so Jordan, 
Jordan gets the way this works, right? If we don't look back in the past, the Democrats are always saying, it's old news, old news. You can hear them saying this almost all the time. Why? Because if you look back, you find out how things turn to crap. And that's why the, that's why Rush Limbaugh used to call them the drive-by media, because they don't go back and look at the causes, because the causes always relate to leftism. They always do, because everything the left touches turns to crap. So where did the virus come from? You know, so uh, Jordan is... Uh, on this committee, and he's talking to um, the guy who was the head, uh, Robert Redfield, the Dr. Robert Redfield, who was the head of the CDC and on the coronavirus task force. And this is what he says about the Democrats. Cut four. Look forward, the Democrats tell us. Focus on the future. Might have started in a lab. Might have, might have happened in nature. But here's the question I keep coming up with. If, if it may have been a lab, may have been nature, we're supposed to look forward, then why did Dr. Fauci work so hard for just one of those theories? Yeah, so that's, that's the question. That's the question that he's putting forward. If we're, we're not supposed to look back in the, at the past. We don't want to look back. Let's look to the future. But there's some questions in the past. Why don't they want to answer those questions, all right? So he's talking to Robert Redfield, who was head of the CDC, and he was on the coronavirus task force. Now, Anthony Fauci... And uh, what's his name? Francis Collins, is that his name? Got emails from two doctors, uh, Christian Anderson and Robert Gary. They wrote an email to Fauci that said, this disease looks like it was engineered. Okay, he writes this email. And Jordan asks Redfield, head of the CDC at the time, uh, about these emails. Cut five. Did he share that email with you, by the way, Dr. Redfield? No. As a member of the task force, as a head of CDC, did he share that email with you? No. Okay. Next day, February 1st, Dr. Gary sends Dr. Fauci another email. That email says, I don't know how this happens in nature, but it would be easy to do in a lab. Did he share that email with you, Dr. Redfield? No. You didn't no. see either one of those emails, even though you're head of CDC, even though you're on the coronavirus task force that had been formed just two days, three days earlier. No. Okay, so now remember, we're talking in Wuhan lab. Did it come out of the Wuhan lab or did it come out of their wet markets or whatever? And the doctors say, look, I don't see how this develops in nature, but it could easily be made in a lab. And suddenly, three days later, these two doctors changed their minds, okay? When this happened, when this happened, the New York Times, so help me, ran a story uh, saying, isn't it wonderful, the scientific method? The scientific method, you make a mistake, and then you study it, and you get the facts, and you change your mind, okay? But there was one thing the New York Times didn't cover about this wonderful scientific method, and Jordan covers it in questioning Redfield. This is quite, uh, cut six. Three days after they say it came from a lab, they changed their position in the only intervening events, a conference call with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins. Again, a call that Mr. Redfield was not allowed to be on, the head of CDC and on the coronavirus task force. And then three months later, Shazam, they get nine million bucks from Dr. Fauci. Well, isn't that something? <laughs> nine million bucks in grants go to these guys who are suddenly writing that it didn't come from a lot. No, it just developed in nature, just developed at the wet markets. So some pangolin, you know, just was, was smoking too much or something. And, he, you know, he got this virus and he spread it to the rest of us, even though three days before it couldn't have happened. They published in, uh, in you know, uh, big journals that, no, no, this was just a natural thing coming out. And then suddenly they get a $9 million worth of grants to go forward with this research. So now... 
Jim Jordan, who's been told by the Democrats, we've got to look ahead, forget the past. You know, we don't know why everything turns to crap. We don't know why all the cities had to be shut down. We don't know why they caught fire. We don't know after we encouraged people to think that uh, the George Floyd, the death of George Floyd was the greatest uh, injustice in the history of humankind and that all of America is riddled with uh, racism. We don't know why our city's on the fire and it's not really on fire. It's kind of, it's mostly, mostly peaceful. It's not like the January 6th insurrection. This is mostly peaceful fire that's burning down our cities. We don't know why this. Don't look back in the past. So finally, Jordan sums up the story so far. Cut uh, seven. We now know U.S. tax dollars went to a lab in China, a lab that was not up to code, a lab that was doing gain-of-function research, and that's where this thing most definitely came from. And Dr. Fauci had to prove, no, no, he can't have that news getting out. And that's why he did what he did to the exclusion of a brilliant guy running our CDC, kept him out of the loop. Keeping him out of the loop probably potentially could have harmed America. That's the thing that ticks us all off. And that's why, Mr. Chairman, this, this hearing is so darn important, and we get to the bottom of really what happened. <laughs> I bet they, you bet they didn't want Jim Jordan on the January 6th committee. If, <laughs> this amazing, it's an amazing story. Fauci directed U.S. money to the Wuhan lab where they were doing gain-of-function research, which means making viruses stronger so that possibly they can be weaponized. The lab created the virus in this gain-of-function research, partially funded with U.S. dollars that Fauci directed to them. The virus leaked out of the lab. Fauci directed nine million bucks in grants to researchers to change their mind. The world shut down. Our children got screwed. Our people were oppressed. Our freedoms were taken away. Our economy is in rags. Don't look bad. How did everything we touched turn to crap? I, I can't understand it. I can't understand what happened. Everything's crap suddenly. Why, why would that be? Why would that be? Remember, journalists... <laughs> Journalists were buying bobblehead dolls of Anthony Fauci because he was such an American hero. He was such an American hero. And it was much more fun to watch his head bouncing up and down than to get off your backside and report on the story that might show that the country had turned to crap because the Democrats had got their hands on it. You know, I, I, I will give some blame to, to Trump here for letting Fauci rule the day, for letting Fauci run the day. I'm not going to let him off the hook either. But it was the Democrats who, you remember, it was Trump who was saying we should reopen around Easter time. And they were saying, oh, my God, the death. It was uh, Donald Trump who was saying, don't be afraid. Don't let it run your life. And Jake Tapper was saying, no, let it run your life. It's death. And, and Cuomo was saying, it's death. What could be worse than death? Fear. We've got to be afraid. And then they wonder, why is why does doesn't everybody trust each other? Why are Americans so angry? Why are they so divisive? It must be it must be Matt Walsh's fault that they're divisive. It must be Donald Trump's fault that they're divisive. It couldn't be the fact that everything the left touches turns to crap. You know, I, I will argue principles with anyone. This, this sometimes makes my friends on the right get angry because I'll say, like, I get it. I get it. Things are unfair. You know, sometimes it needs a little government fixing in there. You know, sometimes Jeff Bezos needs a smack on the head to make sure his workers can go to the bathroom and, and do a good job. But I will argue, you know, everybody at The Daily Wire argues principles. Ben and Jeremy and Michael Knowles and I, we have all argued principles. We have very different uh, priorities. Uh, not very different, but we have different priorities. But here's the thing. Ben and Jeremy and Michael Knowles and maybe even me are good at what we do. We do a good job. When we don't do a good job, we clean up the mess and try to get better. We don't sit around and say, oh, everything's broken. How'd that happen? <laughs> 
know, we take responsibility. These guys have detached themselves from reality because it makes them feel nice. And now they can't understand why reality doesn't work the way they want it to work. One more. I got to show you one more in just a sec. When you're running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations. For instance, if an employee reports a serious issue like sexual harassment, do you have a documented policy for how to handle that situation? It's questions like that. That's why you need Bambi. Bambi gives you access to your own dedicated HR manager who's available to you by phone, email, and real-time chat. They'll help you run employee onboarding terminations and performance reviews. With Bambi's HR Autopilot feature, you can automate important HR practices like setting policies, employee training, and feedback procedures. All of Bambi's HR managers are based in the United States, giving you the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost you $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at just $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now and type Andrew Clavin under podcast when you sign up, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E.com. Bambi.com and type in Andrew Clavin, which is spelled, by the way, K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's in Clavin. I just make it look this easy. All right, one more hearing. You know, don't look back, say the Democrats. Just look ahead. You know, it's old news. It's old news. So now, (laughs) you got to love them. You got to love the Democrats. They are the biggest bunch of clowns. They're like the Keystone Cop Party, uh, except evil. They, the House, I believe it's the House Foreign Affairs Committee. They're looking into the disastrous uh, surrender in Afghanistan, right? And a U.S. Marine Corps sniper named Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews gets up and he tells the story. It's a, I mean, it just, it, if I had hair, it would have stood on end. Uh, he tells a story of, he's there, he's a sniper, he's in a tower, he's watching Afghans be murdered by the Taliban and the, he's not allowed to do anything about it. He and some of his buddies see a suicide bomber getting ready to bomb the place. They call up their commander, they show him what they saw and the guy says to him, uh, we can't do anything about this. We're not the ones responsible. And he says, well, you better find out who is responsible because we saw a suicide bomber down there. Meanwhile, then Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews is called down to the ground and the bomb goes off and he gets hit. He lost an arm and a leg. Here he is describing what happened as he's lying on the ground, cut 16. A crowd of hundreds immediately vanished in front of me and my body was catastrophically wounded with 100 to 150 ball bearings now in it. <clears throat> Almost immediately, we started taking fire from the neighborhood, and I saw how injured I was with my right arm, completely shredded and unusable. I saw my lower abdomen soaked in blood. I crawled backwards seven feet, roughly seven feet because I thought I was still in harm's way. My body was overwhelmed from the trauma of the blast. My abdomen had been ripped open. Every inch of my exposed body, except for my face, took ball bearings and shrapnel. I tried to get up, but could not. Laying there for a few minutes, I started to lose consciousness. When I heard Chaz, my team leader, screaming my name as he ran to me, his his voice calling to me kept me awake. 
That's uh, how you keep people from dying and keeping them, keep them awake. I had to play that because you have to understand what happened to this guy. It happened to, and a, a lot of Marines were killed there. But this is the, but what he says next is the important thing, which is much less emotional, but much less to the point as he finishes his statement. This is cut eight. I ask you to please ask me about getting shot at the tower in Abbey Gate and how no one wanted my report post-blast. Even NCIS and the FBI failed to interview me. Ask me to elaborate on my ordeal post-blast and ask me about this one little girl and her family that I reunited. Our military members and veterans deserve our best because that is what we give to America. The withdrawal... The withdrawal was a catastrophe, in my opinion, and there was an inexcusable lack of accountability and negligence. The 11 Marines, one sailor, and one soldier that were murdered that day have not been answered for. It was a catastrophe. It was an absolute catastrophe. I don't know if you remember on backstage, we we had this vigorous discussion, vigorous uh, disagreement over whether or not we should have left at all, and I kept saying... You can't even decide whether we should have left. It was such a disaster. It was done so badly. $7 billion worth of military equipment was left behind. That is now showing up in other conflicts with other uh, extremists who are now using that stuff. It's being sold around the world, obviously. Uh, the women we elevated from uh, Taliban oppression have been are back being oppressed again. And what do you think about Putin? Do you think Putin would have gone into Ukraine if he hadn't seen what a clown Biden is, what a disaster that surrender was. Biden, remember, Biden announced this was going to happen, and he promised us it was not going to be like this. This is cut nine when he made the announcement that we were pulling out. We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it. We'll do it responsibly, deliberately, and safely. <laughs> yeah, he didn't want it to look like Vietnam, which is exactly what it did look like. I can remember that. I can remember the surrender in Vietnam, which was also the Democrats who cut off the funding for the uh, peace treaty that we had. We had we were going to leave people in place. And this was the same thing. Uh, Biden's military advisors were telling him, leave a few people in there, leave maybe 2,500 people in there uh, and we can keep the peace. But he wouldn't do it. He wanted to get out. He wanted to be the guy who ended the longest war in, in history. This is way beyond, again, this is not about principles. This is way beyond whether we should have gone in, way beyond whether we should have stayed. It's just the fact that he didn't face reality because he thought that the Afghan army was going to defend it. Here he is uh, telling the press right before, right before the Taliban takes over the country in about, what, 30 minutes? Uh, Right before he's telling the press it's not going to happen. Cut 10. Is a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No. It is not because you have the Afghan troops have 300,000 well-equipped, as well-equipped as any army in the world and an Air Force against something like 75,000 Taliban. It is not inevitable. (laughs) It's not inevitable. So then it was inevitable. They threw down their weapons. They ran away. You know, it's like, could we at least say, could we at least say, oh, we, our intelligence was wrong? Could we at least say, you know, yeah, I made, a, I made the wrong decision. I called it wrong. I thought I got my facts wrong. No, no, no. I mean, th- these pictures, if you don't remember them, these pictures of this disaster and the 13 of our military guys being blown up, uh, uh, the unnecessary panic, the unnecessary slaughter, the closing of the airport when we needed to keep it open, all the incompetence, right, all of that. Finally, even the mainstream media, even the crap mainstream media had to uh, ask him a question. George Stephanopoulos, dean of the left-wing media, actually asked him about this. Listen to what, listen to what Biden says, because this is the key thing. This is what 
what gets me about the left is not just that everything they touch goes sour. It's the fact that then they cannot figure out why it went wrong. Here is uh, uh, Joe Biden and George Stephanopoulos cut 11. You don't think this could have been handled? This actually could have been handled better in any way? No mistakes? No, I, I, I don't think it could have been handled in a way that there, we, we're going to go back in hindsight and look. But the idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing, I don't know how that happens. <laughs> he didn't say that to begin with, did he? He said it was going to be great. It's going to be an orderly. And now he says, I don't see how we could have done it without chaos. I mean, he told us there wasn't going to be chaos. He told us the Taliban wasn't going to take over uh, the country right away. And when all of that happened, did you do anything wrong? Did you get anything wrong? No, no, no. We got it. Not a thing. It's like, it was 100%. It was just as great as it could possibly, you know, except for all the dead people, it was just as great as it possibly could be. And as I said before, you have to think, you have to think that Vladimir Putin, who didn't make a move when Trump was president because he was so scared of him, he didn't make a move while Donald Trump was president. All they kept saying is, oh, Trump is colluding with Russia. And Putin was saying, eh, I'm not going to go up against that guy. Suddenly, Putin goes into Ukraine. So you've got to think that this is happening. And if this turns into World War III, which it might, which it might, my question is, you know, will the cockroaches who then evolve into intelligent life after we're gone because we had to fight in the Ukraine, are they going to sit down and say, you know, really, it, it really started with that incredibly incompetent surrender uh, in Afghanistan. Then the Democrat cockroaches are going to be, don't look back, don't look back. You know, we don't, we don't really know. There's nothing we could have done. They couldn't have gone. Everything, everything. And, you know, it, it's like it, it's always because they're nice. Has one person been fired or cashiered for that surrender? Has one person been held to account for that uh, incredible disaster? No, because Democrats are nice. They butcher children into transgender costumes, but they're nice. They're nice. Matt Walsh is mean because he talks about it. They defund the police, and now their cities are crime-ridden. Black citizens, our citizens are being killed by the thousands because they took the police away. But that was a nice thing to do. I mean, when I talk about it, when I say what our cities look like, I'm a bigot. I'm mean when I talk about that. But they're nice because they defund the police. Insane people, they say, have a right to sleep on the streets. And you know what happens to them? A lot of them end up in prison. You're putting a, a person who cannot deal with reality in a cage. It's a Victorian torture. But if you say, you know what, take those people off the streets, put them in shelters. Oh, that's not nice. You're not nice. You're, you're mean. You're mean. Building a wall on the border, that was evil, remember? That's where that Trump, that evil, bigoted, racist, nasty Trump wanted to build a wall on the border. Now illegals are pouring in, fentanyl is pouring in, people are being kidnapped and killed. You know, we're talking about going to war with me the Mexican cartels, right? Our children are dying of overtime. But a wall, that's mean. Don't be mean. Democrats are nice. Democrats are nice. Women are less happy. Uh, this is one of my favorites, the paradox of female unhappiness, they call it. You know why they call it that? It's a paradox of female, because they can't figure out why women's lives have turned to crap. They can't figure out what it is. They, we gave you feminism. And they'll say, even though women have our wonderful leftist feminism, they're unhappy. They're more unhappy. Oh, we can't understand it. What happened? What happened? Why does everything turn to crap? They cannot understand. Not their fault, because they're nice. Florida is turning into a paradise, but DeSantis is Hitler. Trump had a great economy, but Trump is Hitler. Everyone's Hitler but the Democrats. They're nice. And yeah, weirdly, weirdly, they're so nice, and yet everything they touch is, turns to crap. How could it happen? How could they possibly be to blame? You know, we all hope that we'll never need life insurance, but only I am immortal. The rest of you... 
you know, mortgage payments, childcare, other expenses don't disappear when you're gone. If you have a family, as I do, you already have plenty of things to worry about. You don't want them worrying about money in a worst case scenario. A good life insurance plan can give your family a safety net so they can get back on their feet should something happen to you. Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from top companies and find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 25 bucks per month for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy one. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. So speaking of things the left ruins and then can't understand why uh, they're ruined, the Oscars are coming up this weekend, and I'm sure you're all not going to be watching them, uh, but you may enjoy. I, I personally enjoy not watching. I just stare into space. It's just so, such a pleasure not to be watching them. But there was an interview with Jimmy Kimmel, who will be the host of the Oscars, and he was asked about the fact that nobody's watching the Oscars anymore, the ratings. And this is what he says. He says, I don't know. It's not something that I have any control over. We're excited that there are movies nominated that people have seen, so we're hoping more people watch. But who the hell knows? There's a lot of focus put on the ratings of these award shows, and it's used as a gauge in some ways, but it has almost nothing to do with the award shows themselves and everything to do with television viewing habits in general. So for... Years, they stand up with their golden, uh, their LeMay gowns and their golden statues, and they look at us and they say, you guys are idiots, you voted for Donald Trump, you stink, we hate you, you're disgusting. We stop watching, it's like, you can, I don't know, what, what I can't imagine what possibly happened. To discuss this and more, we have the delightful Christian Toto with us. He is a, a terrific uh, film critic, an award-winning film critic. He is the host of the Hollywood and Toto podcast. If you're not listening to the Hollywood and Toto podcast, you really are missing something because he's not just talking about movies. He's talking about free speech, about all the things that are bothering us today. And unlike most of the conservative critics, he actually knows about the movies and loves them. Christian, it's great to see you. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. What do you make of that? That Kimmel quote kind of got up my nose a little bit because I just feel like it's them, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> didn't they ruin the Oscars? Listen, there's a kernel of truth to it. It is harder to get a mainstream, wide appeal presentation now. We're distracted. There's social media. There's a million things we could be doing besides watching the Oscars. But, you know, you hit the point. They've been chasing us away for about five to ten years now. This is a terrible, awful show. It is dull. It is way too long. It is preachy. And when it goes to the political uh, commentary, it's one-sided to a fault. So why would half the country even bother? And they've chased us away. We're not coming back. And the fact that they've chosen him to be the host again, this is his third time, is all the clue you need. I mean, listen, if they reached out to Ricky Gervais, uh, a Dennis Miller, or just someone who is wildly apolitical, maybe some people say, you know what? I love that guy or gal. I'm going to give it a shot. Maybe it got better. You pick Jimmy Kimmel, you're saying, no, we're going to stick our thumb in your eye yet again. And that's what they're doing. You know, I mean, I just comparing it to the Super Bowl, which still has these tremendous ratings. The NFL has tried to be as woke and offensive as they can. 
But people like me actually turned them off. I mean, it cost me a pleasure to turn off the NFL, but I did it for two years, and they backed off. They kind of backed up a little bit. But these guys, they never change. I mean, you're right about Kimmel. Kimmel, is, that's a, it's an insult. The guy's, he's guys obnoxious, you know? Yeah, I mean, he's a propagandist on late night TV. There's no, there's no way to right. kind of dance around that fact. And, you know, what the NFL does for the most part is it has a great product. And I agree, they have kind of, kind of, stepped back with the messaging and that still matters. And we still love the show, the content. There's been great Super Bowl uh, games for the last five or so years. And that's why we care. Yeah. This show, listen, they don't want to be funny. They don't want to be entertaining. It's not their mission now. It's about, you know, we have to kind of downplay society. We have to kind of say, oh, Hollywood has been so terrible to minorities. And they have been, but let's not get reminded of it again and again, because this is the night to honor Hollywood. This is the night to say, you know, movies are pretty great. And let's honor the actresses and actors. Let's see who was the best this year. If they stick to that template, I think people would come back, but it's not its not what they want to do now. And that's why the ratings are so poor. It's, it's really interesting. One of the things they've been talking about is not having an actor and actress category. And anybody who can think 10 minutes into the future realizes that if you only have one award and it's won by a man three times in a row, then if the fourth year a man gives the best performance, he's not getting that award. So it's, yeah. it just adds this extra uh, stupid thing to it. Who, who was it? Um, the, the lady from uh, Fargo, the actress from Fargo, just said that she regretted. Say, what did she say? Do you know about this? Do you know the story? You know, I don't. I know she's been oh. pretty uh, kind of a good virtue signaler, Frances McDormand. Yeah, and she's been pushing, I think, inclusion writers. Yes. That was maybe yes. one of the kind of a call celeb for her, but I don't know what else. Yes. She and she now, saying. she just, re she just said she wished she didn't, she didn't open her mouth. All right. Well, let's talk about <laughs> some of these, some of these movies. Uh, sure. The big question, I think, for us is does Top Gun Maverick have any chance in hell of winning this award? I, I, not in this reality. There's a multiverse where it wins, and I want to go there because that would be wonderful. But we don't live in that multiverse. We live in our, our, our plane, and it's not going to win. Listen, anything could, anything's possible. There could be the sort of this this uh, gorilla like voting tactic where they say, you know, screw it. This was the best movie. This was the most popular movie. This brought fannies back into the seats. Let's give it a go. I don't see it. It seems wildly implausible uh, to me. You know, it, listen, the Oscars are dull in part because we've seen 18 other award shows in the last two months. And it seems like everything everywhere all at once is just swooping, you know, sweeping everything that needs to be swept. So that should win. I can't imagine it not winning. There was some energy about the Fablemans, the Steven Spielberg, kind of the coming of age story. And it's not a great movie. It's fine. It's perfectly mm. good. But I, I can't imagine that's the best picture. So I, I think that's where things will go this year. You know, I, I saw, I mean, I, I haven't seen a lot of these pictures, but I did see Everything Everywhere All at Once and The Fablemans. Uh, mm -hmm. And I thought Everything Everywhere All at Once was okay, you know? I mean, I was amused. It was it was fun. But, like, what what is it about that movie that the establishment likes so much? Why is it that a, a movie that they can that they can give the Oscar to but not Top Gun? Well, there's a couple things here. One, it's a, it's a genuinely indie-style movie. It didn't have mm -hmm. a huge budget behind it. It didn't have a huge marketing muscle. And it made some cash. It made, I think, between 70 and 80 million, give or take. That's pretty good for a smaller film. It's got a, a, an Asian cast. I think Hollywood has this deep-seated uh, guilt about what the people keeping people out of the, the production, uh, away from the screens for years and years. Again, they're guilty as, guilty as charged, so there's that. 
And I, I, you know, it just it just seems to have that momentum. It's a weird thing about award season. It's a there's a flow to it. There's an ebb and a flow. There's the, you know things rise, things fall. You say the wrong thing, you could get in trouble. So it just seems to have done all the right things along the way. And I think Michelle Yeoh, uh, maybe I don't know others as well in the cast have been very aggressive in saying, you know, I've been I've been you know treated poorly in Hollywood. I haven't had a mm. chance. So all these factors come in. It's going to win, I think. Yeah, she and she is wonderful. I mean, she's just she, she is she lights sure. she lights up the screen. There's no question mm-hmm. about that. According to a recent poll, 62% of Americans who think about their own death a lot of the time do not have a will. That doesn't make any sense. It's kind of like being afraid of drowning but refusing to wear a life jacket. My partners at Epic Will can help you get set up with a will today. Should you ever be in a situation where you're unable to make health-related decisions for yourself, you need someone to speak to doctors on your behalf. For just $119 and in as little as five minutes, Epic Will can help you create your last will and testament, your living will, and even healthcare power of attorney. Their team of estate planning attorneys has done all the legal work for you, so all you have to do is tell them about yourself. Go to epicwill.com slash Clavin to get my discount code and save an extra 10% on your complete will package. With Epic Will's easy-to-use template, all you have to do is fill in the blanks, epicwill.com slash Clavin to save 10% on Epic Will's complete Will package. That's epicwill.com slash Clavin. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, yes, yes, but how? Oh, how? Please tell me how do you spell Clavin? <laughs> it's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no easy things. Uh, Jason Riley uh, said that Tar in the Wall Street Journal said that Tar should win. Now, Tar, I'm supposed to watch Tar tomorrow with mm-hmm. my wife. Uh, it's two and a half hours long, so I have to actually, like, you know, uh, take money out of the bank just so I <laughs> can afford to sit there for two and a half hours. Um, is that good? It is good. I know some conservatives have been rallying behind it. It sort of looks yeah. at cancel culture in a way, but it's not a lecture. It really kind of has a lot of the nuances behind it. It's not just an easy an easy watch. And Kate Blanchett okay. is just so insanely good. And, mm-hmm. and it really is a wonderful look at the the world of, of classical music. And I love movies that that get you into a different experience where I don't know a lot about classical music, but I feel like I, I got a peek, sort of, I guess, a peek at the curtain to see what goes on. Why is something so special? Uh, the artists behind it, the egotism, the power, and the power is so fascinating in the movie. So it's very good. It doesn't seem to have the cachet. It also made no money. No one went to see it, despite the buzz, despite everything. It just people. It was like you know garlic and vampires. They didn't go well together. <laughs> well, you know, you can make a you can make an indie p- picture about classical music, and you can mm-hmm. make a two and a half hour picture, but you can't make a two and a half hour picture of an indie picture of classical music. Like even I, even I, who was kind of attracted to this and, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that does get me about the movies is I love watching actors work because it's something I can't do at all. And I just think it's, it is amazing, especially when you consider how movies are made, how they're patched together uh, to, to watch actors work. And um, these people are so talented. They're so talented that yeah. when they stand up and tell me that I voted for the wrong person, I just want to kick them into submission. <laughs> I just want to take them in a back room and slap them and say, you know, go out and, you know, like that scene in uh, in uh, Hail Caesar. I just want to <laughs> slap them and say, make the movie, you know. Uh, you know, there are some movies on here. The, the new thing is they they now nominate like 110 movies. <laughs> and, and some of them, like a movie called Women Talking, like, I, or I, I couldn't get to the end. I couldn't get to the G in talking before I like my mind turned off. <laughs> I call it critic sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is that as bad as it sounds? 
You know, it's it's a well-crafted movie. I didn't enjoy it immensely. I had no significant issues with it. Uh, I think you can tell the tone of it, what's going on, but it is based on a true story and had some good performances. I, I don't think it's a Best Picture nominee. Uh, I, mm. You know, one of the ones that made me so curious was Triangle of Sadness. It's an expose. It's a satire on the uber-rich. And the first half is wonderful. And I don't, mm. you can make fun of the rich all you want. Just do it well. And it's beautiful. Yeah. It's got, uh, you know, it's got a comic sensibility that, that's just off the charts. And the second half of the movie is terrible. It's it's like a lecture. It's boring. It, it's, as, it's as predictable as you feared it might be. And I mm. thought uh, they didn't get there. But, you know, listen, it hit the right target. So it's a Best Picture nominee. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Talking to Christian Toto. If you're not listening to Christian Toto's Hollywood in Toto podcast, Hollywood in T-O-T-O uh, podcast, terrific stuff. Like I said, it's nice to hear somebody who's both sane and actually knows the movies, which is not always uh, what happened. You know, I had a, I had a really interesting reaction to the Fablemans. I, no one uh, can beat me in my admiration of Spielberg's talent as a director. Mm. But I find him incredibly shallow. I mean, I find I I thought I thought the Holocaust movie uh, was was shallow. I thought all his serious movies are shallow. And I thought this movie, while it had a certain amount of charm, especially up to the reveal, I thought the reveal was really great. Um, it had it charm. It, it didn't really delve into uh, this guy's life in a way that I thought was realistic. Uh, did, am I alone in that, or did you feel that there was something missing from this movie? There's definitely something missing. I think on the surface, it's a fine movie with good performances, yeah. an interesting arc. And of course, knowing who Steven Spielberg is today, we want the origin story. We're fascinated by right. it. But I agree. It, it doesn't have the complexity. Uh, the Seth Rogen character and his romance with uh, Steven Spielberg's mom, it, it doesn't really resonate. But, I, you know, you look at the Steven Spielberg body of work, and I don't think it's a... I don't think sophistication, I don't think nuance is is his call. I mean, he's a populist filmmaker. He knows how to put us on a, on a roller coaster ride. I think I think Jaws is a perfect movie. So I, I you know he has many, many strengths, but I don't think that's where his 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 richness is. And I, I think yeah. I think it's the kind of movie you can watch it and know something's off, but not it's hard to say, okay, what yes. was it? Yeah. And point a finger at it. That's, that's absolutely true. I mean, it, the one thing I really liked about the movie is my wife talk, and I talked about it for like three days afterwards for that very reason. We couldn't quite figure out why it wasn't ringing the bell, but it's, it is interesting. Somebody once called Spielberg the, the greatest second unit director who ever lived, you know, that he, he does great <laughs> action scenes. It's absolutely true. Yeah, ouch is right. Uh, Avatar, The Way of Water, I, I hated the first Avatar. I, I thought it was just an anti-American, like, uh, screed. So I didn't go to see this. <laughs> so is it any good? You know, I have a, I have weird reactions to both films because technically they're flawless. He mm. seems to understand a, a way to tell a story that that does get you yes. involved. Yes. Also, he knows, you know, he's a very left of center fellow. But this new movie is all about the nuclear family, uh, protecting your sons and daughters, uh, standing up for what's right. There are very conservative messages within his movies at times, which I think is very interesting given who he is. He, he once said, I, I like eco-terrorists, I believe. So that's that's where Cameron rolls. But <laughs> it's listen, the dialogue is is inane at times. Uh, there are cliches all over the screen. But it, it is a visual presentation, unlike anything I've seen. And I can't I can't dismiss that. So I, it's, yeah. it's, it's almost like he makes his movies in this weird place where, you know, this is bad. You know, this is awful. You know, this could have been a million times better. But you're in your seat and you're having a good time. So it's it's a there's a lot of different emotions when we watch a film yeah. like those now. 
Yeah, no, there's no taking away these guys' talent. That's what's so frustrating about mm -hmm. it. And I and I personally believe that the conservatives with that kind of talent are literally kept out of the business, that they are mm -hmm. actually blacklisted. And, there's, and, and after a while, they just don't show up anymore because there's no <laughs> point. Uh, you know, they go into a, a different business. Let me, I'm, I'm running out of time, but let me ask you one last question. Uh, John Nolte over at Breitbart uh, wrote a piece pointing out that it used to be that if you won the Oscar, it actually made money. The picture then, people then mm. went to the picture. Completely untrue now, or do you think there's still some truth to that? There's a modest bounce with the nominations. There's, a, there's more curiosity towards certain titles. You know, it's a little hard to register at times because I see these different streaming charts and it'll say, oh, the, all the Oscar nominees are way up there. And then I read a second one where they say, oh, no, they're nowhere near the top. Hmm. So I think there's a little bit of un uncertainty within the ranking systems right now. But listen, if you look at the Oscars, I think four or five of the Best Picture nominees made less money than Jesus Revolution did in two weeks. Much, much less. <laughs> so, you know, I think that that's maybe says it all. I mean, you can look at the ranks, yeah. look at the, the charts to, to your blue in face, but that's where Hollywood is today. That's interesting. Uh, Christian Toto, he's the host of the Hollywood in Toto podcast. You get it anywhere. You get your podcasts, uh, iTunes, any place. Christian, great to talk to you. It's been too long. Let's do it again soon. Love it. Thanks so much. It takes all kinds of talent to keep a workplace running smoothly. I wouldn't know, but that's what it says in the copy. Take the White House, for example. We all know about the standard White House roles, secretary, speechwriter, counsel, etc. But did you know that the White House also has an executive pastry chef, a director of youth correspondence, and a chief calligrapher? Just like growing a business, you need the right people to keep your workplace going strong. If you're hiring, you can fill all your roles with ZipRecruiter. Head over to ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. Try it for free. ZipRecruiter's matching technology finds the most qualified candidates for you. See a candidate you like, you can easily send them a personal invite so they're more likely to apply. Their user-friendly dashboard makes it easy to filter, review, and rate your candidates all from one place. See why even the most prestigious businesses count on ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin to try ZipRecruiter for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire if, and only if, you know how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There's no such thing as a stupid job. Uh, I don't know. Whoever wrote this copy probably hasn't watched this show. But if you're listening to this show, then I'll give you the benefit of the doubt that you have an intellectual capacity that is larger than a turnip. Still, you might be lacking in vision when it comes to your job. Thankfully, Jordan Peterson is here to set you straight in his new five-part series on Daily Wire Plus called Vision and Destiny. Here's a clip. If you have the opportunity to have a job and you're not working with people who are entirely tyrannical and pathological, if you make the right sacrifices in that position and you have the proper vision, which isn't based on resentment, oh, why do I have to do this stupid job? It's like, well, it's going to be a stupid job if that's the attitude you have towards it. Instead, if you try to foster all the interpersonal relationships you have in that environment, you'll find that there's an infinite amount of possibility right there in front of you, like there always is. Yeah, totally true. It's uh, every job. Every job is a good job. We just have to do it as a good job. The fourth episode of Vision and Destiny is out today. New episodes are releasing every week, but it's all exclusive for Daily Wire Plus members. Join now at dailywire.com slash subscribe to watch Vision and Destiny. All right, so we're talking about the fact that everything the left touches... <laughs> 
goes bad. Everything they touch goes bad, and then they can't figure out why. And there was such a beautiful example of this uh, in the New Yorker magazine, and it's one that's very dear to my heart. A subject that's very dear to my heart. Uh, a lot of, been a lot of talk about this. This is a massively long article, and I read every word of this piece. Uh, just it, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the New Yorker, but the stories and it just go on forever. They're like book length stories. It's called The End of the English Major. Enrollment in the Humanities is in free fall at colleges around the country. What happened? What happened? <laughs> so I read every word of this. It took me, I think, about seven and a half weeks. I could have told them at the beginning. The left took over the humanities. The humanities turned to crap. But there was like, I can't, I, what happened? What happened? Before we get to the article, I want to start with a personal reminiscence. And this was... Uh, this is part of this was in my memoir, The Great Good Thing. Uh, I, I was I was a lousy student and I, I I didn't pay attention. I was a renegade. I was a rebel. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I, I got my education after I got out of college when I read all the books uh, that I had bought in college. It took me 10, 15 years really to get an education that way, uh, which I should have been able to get in college, but I didn't. And it was my fault. I'm not blaming anybody about it. But while I was there, the left was starting its takeover of the institutions. This is the 1970s, so they're really just beginning to come in, and you would kind of hear them. It was kind of like that scene at the end of the movie Cabaret, where you look around and there's just a few more Nazis in the audience than there used to be. That's what it was like at universities. They started with the moral relativism, the racism stuff, all of this stuff was just coming in. Now, I took a course in uh, Victorian poetry, I believe it was in, and the lady who taught this course is now a very big deal. All right, I'm not going to tell her name because it's not really her fault, but it was indicative of something was, that was happening. At the time, she was just an English teacher. She was teaching poetry. And she was teaching one of my favorite poems, a poem I already knew because at those, in those days, everybody knew it, The Charge of the Late Brigade. Now, this is a, by Alfred Lord Tennyson, uh, one of the greatest top-tier poets. The top tier is what happens right after Shakespeare. Shakespeare uh, is above it, and then comes the top-tier poets. And, and Tennyson is out of favor because he represents the Victorian, uh, you know, em imperial Britain, but he was one of the greatest poets who ever lived. Uh, and, he, and this is one of his greatest poems, The Charge of the Light Brigade, which is about a charge in 1854 in the Crimean War. Uh, the, the Light Brigade, because some orders got screwed up, was sent to charge full frontal into a line of guns, of cannons, right? And they were just blown away, and people watching them from above saw they were so disciplined that as they, each one of them was blown away, they would just close ranks and keep going, and they actually charged through the guns. It was one of the great tragedies, one of the great screw-ups uh, in military history, but it was also one of the great acts of nobility. And in this brilliant, brilliant poem, uh, Tennyson manages to capture both the glory of it and the stupidity of it, you know, just the, the kind of, you know, there's a line in it, someone had blundered, you know, but at the same time, you understand the incredible courage of these men, uh, but you understand also that they are being sent to their deaths for no reason. And so we're reading this brilliant, brilliant poem, and this girl stands up in the class, a student stands up and says to this lady, who would later become a very, very big deal in the English game, says, why are we learning this poem? It's pro-war. Why are we talking? Why do we like this poem? It's pro-war. It glorifies war. And she couldn't, the teacher could not answer the question. She shrugged. She literally just, I, I don't know. I don't know. And 
She didn't know. She didn't know why we were learning it. She was an English teacher and, as I said, became one of the uh, leading lights in this field and could not answer why we were reading Charge of the Light Brigade, one of the greatest poems in the English language. She couldn't answer it. She didn't know. So I was so upset that I leapt to my feet and I was, I couldn't talk. I was completely inarticulate. I just babbled for a few minutes. And I, I kept saying, you know, the poem goes half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death, rode the 600. You've maybe have heard the famous line, there's not a reason why, there's but to do and die, do or die. And so it's like this beautiful poem. I was saying half a league, half a league, half a league onward. So you can hear the horse's hooves. I was, like, I was trying to explain. And I couldn't. I finally just flopped back into my chair, a completely inarticulate, made a complete fool of myself, because if you couldn't hear why that the poem was great, then you shouldn't be learning about poetry in the first place, because you're an idiot. And the thing is, this was an ignorant child, because all children are ignorant. That's what being a child is about. You come to college to be taught. She wanted to hear her own ideas talked back to her, because she was a child, because that's what children want. They want to be reassured that everything they think is true, and you have to break it to them as a college professor. Yes, but this is a brilliant poem bringing a, an amazing moment to life with incredible talent. And it doesn't matter what you think about war. This is an experience in itself. You can still hate war. You can still think that war can be. You can think any stupid thing you want, but at least have this experience with another mind speaking to you out of the past. It's like a time machine. This is why, I mean, these guys are editing Roald Dahl. This is why they're editing James Bond. And eventually they'll edit Shakespeare, too. They're just starting with these guys because they can say, oh, it's not important. It's just Roald Dahl. It's just James Bond. But they'll get to Shakespeare. Believe me, they want to silence the voice of the writer so their voice is the only voice around. Don't, don't give us objectivity. Just give us reality. And we know what reality is. It's the same thing, right? So the question then becomes, why study literature if it's just going to tell us the same things we already know, because if it doesn't tell us the same things we already know, we're going to silence it and re-edit it, right? So they can't figure out why nobody's taking English classes anymore, because you don't get anything from English classes. You just get the left telling you what you already know because you read it, uh, in, because you were taught it in high school. So the article begins in the New Yorker. This is the article in the New Yorker about why the where went the whither went the English? You know why did the English department turn to crap? Can't imagine. Cannot figure it out. The crisis when it came arrived so quickly that its scale was hard to rec recognize at first. <laughs> they're always surprised. They're, everything they touch turns to crap, and they're always surprised when it happens. From 2012 to the start of the pandemic, the number of English majors on campus at Arizona State University fell from 953 to 578. According to Robert Townsend, the co-director of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, Humanities Indicators Project, which collects data uniformly, but not always identically, to internal enrollment figures, from 2012 to 2020, the number of graduated humanities majors at Ohio State's main campus fell by 46%. Tufts lost nearly 50% of its humanities majors. Boston University, 42%. Notre Dame uh, ended up with half as many as it started with. SUNY, just on and on. People are abandoning these things, right? Now, the thing is, some of the, some of the people, they go around asking people, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And nobody says because the left got hold of it and everything the left touches turns crap. Nobody said that, strangely enough. Well, I'll get back to one person who said one interesting thing, but, but nobody really came up with the big answer. 
being it, but somebody said, well, you know, it's impractical. Somebody always wants you to do STEM. They want you, but being an English major was always impractical. When I was an English major, we called it pre-short order chef. That's what we called it because we thought, you know, like you're in pre-med or you're pre-law or something like that. We were pre-short order chef because there was no reason to take it. But even as a bad student, I learned stuff, stuff filtered into my mind. I was at UC Berkeley, had this the second best English department in the country. There was Yale and UCB. So I was getting great professors. And even though I was a dope, and even though I didn't show up for things, and even though I was drinking and chasing girls, doing all the stuff that you'd think I was doing, I was, you know, I, I got something. I learned, for instance, that the Greeks came before the Romans, and the Romans came before the Europeans, and the Europeans came before us. That's an important thing. You start to see, oh, there was a, a, an idea working itself out over thousands of years in great literature. I realized that the West is unique in its ability to self-reflect, that only the West's artists can win uh, say the Trojan War, and, the, uh, and can, they can defeat the Trojans. The Greeks can defeat the Trojans, and then the Greeks write plays about how badly the Trojans uh, were treated. I mean, that's only in the West. You know, you think about the Middle Ages, and you think, oh, back then everybody was pious and holy, and the church was in charge. And then you read Chaucer, and it's filled with sex. People are constantly writing to me, why is there so much sex in your books? It's not like the good old days. They should read some Chaucer. You know, if you got, you can get a translation and get it in modern English instead of Middle English, as girls sticking their butts out the window because guy wants a kiss and it's too dark for him to know, and then like farting in his face. I mean, it's like amazing stuff that is going on in the depths of the Middle Ages in the 13th century. And then, of course, there's Shakespeare, who in some way invented who we are. That is, he put on paper what it means to be a man and a woman in a Christian world. People say he's a secular artist. That's not true. It's just that his Christianity is so deep, it just permeates the world, and people don't have to talk about it all the time because it's just the way the world works. So you break the, the you can break the moral web, you can bend the moral web, but the moral web snaps back in Shakespeare all the time. If you kill your way to the top of the throne, uh, the ghosts of the people you kill are going to come back and haunt your conscience, uh, and you are, your life is going to become meaningless. It's a re realistic portrayal of life. Now, you don't have to agree with Shakespeare. You can think, no, I don't want to live that way. You can think, no, there's a better way to live. You don't have to uh, agree with any of these guys, but visionaries are speaking to you from the past. It is as if, it's as if people had come to you in a time machine and said, this is what it's like. And they're genius people. They're not your professors who are second-rate people. They are genius people with vision and talent that comes from God. They're being spoken to by the muses from God. This is what Shakespeare is doing. He's channeling stuff. He's not just thinking it up by himself. You know, the Folger Shakespeare Library, one of the greatest Shakespeare libraries in the world, what are they teaching over there? Go, go look at their website. Exploring race and whiteness in Shakespeare. Now, the funny thing about that, the funny thing about that, Shakespeare says a lot of things about race. He has a lot to say about race. If you want to read a great article about it, go to City Journal and look up A Nation of Iagos. Absolutely brilliant article uh, by one of our great, that's by me, I'm, jo I'm joking, but it is still a good article about what Shakespeare has to say about race, A Nation of Iagos. But he's not talking with CRT. If you're talking CRT, critical race theory, you're not talking Shakespeare, you're talking you. He said I had a lot to say about gender, but if you're talking feminist theory or queer theory or critical race theory, you're obscuring the voice of the author. And so when a kid says to you, why should I learn this when I'm just learning you, I'm not learning genius, I'm not getting a visit from the past, 
This article goes on forever. Let me read some of the reasons people give, give the writer about why this is happening. Technology. It's technology. It's changed me. I probably read five novels a month until the 2000s. If I read one a month now, it's a lot. Uh, over the New York Times, Ross Dothat uh, said the same thing. He no longer reads uh, great books. I read great books all the time. I, I use technology, but I read great old books all the time. Another one says, young people are very, very concerned about the ethics of representation, of cultural interaction. You think that just popped into their heads? This is what they say. She says, um, several teachers described young people as having an orientation toward the present to the extent that many students lost their bearings in the past. The last time I taught, says one teacher, the last time I taught the Scarlet Letter, I discovered that my students were really struggling to understand the sentences as sentences, like having trouble identifying the subject and the verb. Their capacities are different, and the 19th century is a long time ago. It's not the 19th century being a long time ago. It's you! Who the hell taught them in high school? You did, just the high school version of you. It's leftists who've taken over our education department, so these kids are ignorant. That's the problem. The problem is not they're oriented toward the uh, present. It's that nobody's taught them about the past. It's your fault. That's why this is happening. One teacher said, there's a real misunderstanding that you can come in and say, I want to read post-colonial texts. That's the thing I want to study. And his answer is that... Uh, all the big writers you want to study, the black writers and the Indian writers and the writers from other cultures, they all read Dickens. And she says, one of the tragedies of the British Empire is that all those writers read all the British books. Terrible tragedy. Guess what? The British wrote better than anyone. They were better at writing. Their books are better. Their language is better. Their insights are better. I've read all the Europeans. I've read a lot of people from other places. The British in the period uh, in the 18th and 19th century wrote better than anyone had ever written before. Oh, I'm a racist. I'm a racist. But I'm not British. I'm not British. My race is Ashkenazi Jew. The British were mean to Ashkenazi Jews for 2,000 years. But boy, oh boy, they sure wrote well. Buried in this article, one paragraph, buried in this article. In my department, the author is very much alive, says Robert Fagan, a, uh, a Robert Foss scholar and a longtime literature professor at Claremont McKenna, which is a more conservative uh, college. And he said, we are very concerned with the beauty of things, with aesthetics, and ultimately with judgment about the value of works of art. I think there is a hunger among students for the thrill that comes from truth and beauty. And of course, their enrollment is up. Their, their enrollment is doing just fine. When I went to Hillsdale, one of the students told me there that when the teacher, uh, it was actually Larry Arn, I believe, the president of Hillsdale, made a speech about truth and beauty, about bringing, uh, living with truth and beauty. And, and she started to cry because she had never heard that concept before. When you say these kids are, uh, are oriented to the present, it's you. They did this to these kids. The kids don't just grow up like that. Kids don't want to hear about the past until you teach them, until you make it interesting and exciting and tell them that they're getting something. You know, Maya Angelou, terrible poet, but, but one of the poets who's always overpraised because she's black, right? And she said, she had this wonderful line where she said, Shakespeare must be a black girl. She read Shakespeare and she said, Shakespeare must be a black girl. Why did she say that? Because Shakespeare spoke to her. She said, the poetry you read has been written for you. Black, white, Hispanic, man, woman, gay, straight. It has been written for you. And that is the whole point. Literature, art, is like salvation. It doesn't come to the world. It comes to you. It is about you. The present knows nothing about itself. We know nothing about ourselves in the present, but the past knows a lot because it's already gone. And when learning how great minds, great talents saw the past, you learn 
about other people. You get other people inside you. You know, I talk a lot on the show about the, what I call the great speculation, which is the basis of the golden rule. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but that is based on the, the speculation, unprovable, the speculation that your inner life is as important to you as my inner life is to me, and both are equally important before God. That is the great speculation. It's a two-part speculation. It can't be proved, but there it is. You learn this by loving. You learn it in marriage. You learn it by having children, and you learn it through art, because art is communing with another soul. And if you can't hear the artist, because some idiot theorist is telling you about feminism and queers and, uh, and race and gender in a way that the artist wasn't talking about it. If you don't let the artist speak, you aren't going to hear anything. If you don't think this is true, look at the arts now. Look at TV now. Look at the movies now. Nobody goes. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to see it. Why? Because the left is in control of the culture and the culture has turned to crap and the left can't figure it out. What went wrong? Where are all the English majors? How could this have happened? It's the same thing over and over and over again. It is them. When will they wake up? Never. We have to wake up for them. We have to do it ourselves. All right, folks, if you are not a subscriber, a, uh, an almost eternal, I will feel like an eternal darkness will be coming to you in the form of the Clavenless Week. You should be a member, you know, go to uh, dailywire.com slash subscribe, use code Claven at checkout, you get two months free on all annual plans. Otherwise, uh, you know, things are going to be, uh, you're not going to like what happens, the wailing, the gnashing of teeth, the fires, it's, it's awful. But even for you, even if you haven't subscribed, we're going to solve all your problems first with the mailbag. They had to take the top of my head off a couple times, <laughs> see if I had a brain. Yeah! <laughs> I wonder how that worked out. All right, from Anonymous. Uh, thank you for taking the time to read my question. I've sent this question to all the Daily Wire hosts. I don't know why you wasted your time, but I have a deeply disturbing and difficult situation. Uh, I cannot find the right path. My wife's 14-year-old sister, my wife's 14-year-old sister is dating another girl from her class who believes she is a boy. There are many things to say, but my anxiety comes from the fact that even though the school, my wife's family, and I know of this girl's condition, her parents do not. I have even hosted this girl's parents at my home, and I was asked by my family to refer to the girl by her given name as opposed to her chosen uh, trans name in front of the parents. For good or bad, I have made the decision to tell the parents because no one else seems interested. My thought was to inform them anonymously by letter. I tell myself this is the best way because I don't want to make the situation about me, but I can't help but feel cowardly like I'm sparing myself in some selfish way. The other option is to tell them directly, which I imagine would strain my relationship with my wife's family, especially her sisters. Any help would be appreciated. Yeah, that is cowardly. Uh, that's, no, definitely cowardly. Uh, and this is a, this is a simple situation, but a hard, but not an easy one. It's simple, but not easy. Uh, you have got to tell her parents uh, because you are being put in a situation where you are doing something wrong, which is keeping a minor situation secret in front of the parents. You are being asked to hide that. Uh, you cannot do that. You have to tell them. Uh, your, your feelings about this girl and what she's doing are none of your business. Keep your mouth shut about that. You don't have to say this is a terrible thing or a bad thing. Uh, you don't have to tell them what you think of it. Uh, but First, tell your wife. First, tell your wife that you're going to do this. Um, and it doesn't matter what her response is. You're going to have to do it anyway. Obviously, you can explain that to her in the kindest and most loving possible way. But you're going to have to do this. Uh, and then go and tell them. And all you have to do is say, this is a situation I just feel that you should be informed. And I don't want to hide things from you. That seems wrong. And tell them the truth. And again, no judgment from you on this because it's none of your business. 
just, but it is your business not to be caught in an immoral situation, and so you should tell them the truth. Uh, from Cooper, uh, hey Drew, I've noticed a cultural issue with conservatives being hesitant to tell people what they can't, shouldn't do. A lot of them seem to be comfortable saying get married and go to church, but when it comes to things like trans, they seem hesitant to say no. Why is this? What can be done about it? Great question. It may take me the rest of our time to answer it, but it's a great question. There, there are two essential reasons, and they're kind of combined, uh, they're kind of intermingled. One is conservatives believe in freedom. They believe in individual freedom. And so we believe that we should leave people alone if they're not picking our pocket or breaking our leg, as, as Thomas Jefferson said. That uh, doesn't mean you are necessarily libertarian, but there's a difference between things that are your business and aren't your business. You know, it may not be good for somebody uh, to, uh, say, practice uh, S&M, uh, you know, even in private. It may not be good, but it's none of your business, and it's none of the government's business, and so you leave them alone. So you don't want to tell people, uh, you know, what not to do when you are butting in. But there's also something a little bit more profound and something that we get churned up in uh, by the press and, and the left, which is, but I repeat myself, um, that there is a, a gap, a space between uh, in, an individual, between a person and an agenda. And we fall into that space and that's where the left churns us up. So the left is really good at hiding the space. So for instance, uh, teachers unions. Teachers unions are the most corrupt, most destructive organization in the country. I think once Giuliani took out the, the commission of the mafia, the teachers unions were next. They are the most uh, corrupt organization. They're incredibly destructive. But teachers are often lovely people, right? Miss Brown, who's teaching your kid in third grade, might be a lovely person. So when somebody says, we've got to get rid of the teachers' union, the teachers immediately put Miss Brown on TV and say, oh, I'm so lovely, you're going to take away my salary, you're going to take away my pension, and you, and you get caught, right? And Arnold Schwarzenegger is voted out, out of office. The same thing is true with all these things, like trans kids. A kid who's confused about uh, his or her sexuality is to be not... You just have to have compassion for that. That's a, a painful thing. It was probably induced by some leftist clown, but still, it's a painful thing. You know, you remember what it's like to be an adolescent. It's hard. You're confused. Sex is one of the most confusing things about it. So when we say it is a bad thing uh, to have a trans agenda to tell people they can change their sex when they cannot, uh, when Michael Knowles, the mass killer of transgender people, uh, the, the great exterminator, says this should be exterminated, what he's saying, it's a lie, and so children shouldn't believe that it can happen. They can't, shouldn't believe uh, that it can, they can change sex. But still, when that one person comes out and says, oh, but I'm so confused, and I'm, you know, obviously you have compassion for that person. And because the left owns the press and because everything the left touches turns to crap, they come out and they say, uh, oh, how can you do this horrible thing to this individual? Uh, you know, no society, uh, you know, uh, Ben likes to talk about people should have roles. They should play the role of being a father, being a husband, being a wife. You know, all, yes, of course, that's the best thing for society and, and the best thing for individuals. But within that role, some people are not suited to that role. Some people have uh, very, very eccentric personalities that don't fit in in that role. In a free society, in a free society, we understand that tension, the tension between what society needs and what people need, and we're always trying to judge where that tension is. You know, where that tension should go. Well, it might be okay, for instance, I mean, gay people are a perfectly good example, you know, that people are gay and want to live their lives as gay people is not really any of your business, no matter what church you go to, no matter what you believe, it's none of your business. But to say, oh, gay pride and we should celebrate this is something different. And society may not, that might be, might be bad for society, uh, even though, of course, leaving people alone is simply the decent thing to do. And so, in that tension, right, there's a tension between the good of society and the good of people. The good of individuals 
is always a better story than the good of society. And since the people on the left are very good at telling stories, this is why they're good at telling stories, it's always easy to tell a story about how how poor Jane, all she wanted to do was be with her lesbian lover, and the mean, you know, conservatives didn't like that, and so they, you know, made her life miserable, and they ended up killing themselves or whatever, you know. It's easy to tell that story, and so we get caught. We don't want to be mean, we don't want to be cruel, uh, but we are saying, you know, really the best thing for a society is to elevate male-female marriage. That's what I believe. I think the best thing for a society is to elevate and privilege male-female marriage. Man and woman creating babies is what society needs. Now, if somebody can't fit into that role, if somebody can't, you know, do that, if somebody has to go a different way, I'm sorry, it's just not my business to listen to people's doors and find out what they're doing, or even to tell them on the street, I don't like what you're doing. It's none of my business. However, as a society, I feel we elevate those things. So it's very hard to tell that story. It's very hard to get it across. There's always somebody saying, you know, well, what, what's going to happen when, what if a, a, a child is raped by a devil and then has a prank and then is pregnant with a devil's child? Shouldn't she be allowed to get an abortion? You go like, you know, buzz off. You know? <laughs> that is the only right answer, but it makes you look bad. So that's why, that's why we got, get caught in that space between society and the individual, and the individual always makes a better story. Um, there's a one from Richard. He says, I'm serious need of advice. I'm a young adult and recently got gay married. He puts married in uh, quotation marks. I was born and raised a Catholic uh, and I'm um, feeling that my faith is coming back and I'm having second thoughts almost six months into my quote unquote marriage. I'm starting to have what I think are regrets. I believe God put this man into my life based purely on the insane amount of coincidences. Uh, but I have a gut feeling that I may have made a wrong decision. I have a longing for children of my own, and even romantically, I feel like I'm missing the satisfaction and wholeness I would get from having a wife. As I grow closer to God, I'm afraid I'll grow further from my quote-unquote husband. I'm willing to follow God wherever he leads me, but I'm scared, lost, and don't know what to do. Many thanks and prayers for you, your family, and the work you do for your DW. There's a possibility that this letter is not real. Uh, There's something that's too pat about it. But I'm going to treat it as if it's real, because it might be real, and it could be real. I think that's the thing. Here's what you, need, what you need to do is you need to do what God tells you to do, not what the church tells you to do, not what people tell you to do, not what your friends tell you, not what your enemies tell you. You need to do what God tells you to do. And the way to do that is to pray and to read the Bible and to talk with people who will uh, consult with you in a way that you trust. And obviously, the one thing you should not do, that I, I can, you don't need God to tell you this, you should not marry a woman if you're gay. Uh, if you're going to um, leave her and your children because you can't fulfill that obligation because you feel like you should be somewhere else. So I can't tell you what you should do with this person that you've promised to live your life with, but I can tell you that God will talk to you, and if you take your time uh, and you pray and you listen and you uh, consult your heart, that is the thing. I think everybody should do this with their sex lives. I think every single person should, you know, not torment yourself over it, uh, but, you know, find out what it is in your sex life that could be more um, immediate, more real, and more uh, um, alive. Uh, and and use your sex life to bring you closer both to the person you love and to God. Uh, So that's what you should do, and uh, good luck, uh, because I can't answer a question that only God can answer. Got to stop there. Uh, Don't forget, go to dailywire.com slash subscribe, code Claven at checkout, two months free on all annual plans. Plus, we won't have to dump you into the Clavenless week so fast, but you can be in the members block coming up.